We begin the Gospel of John, so make sure you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one right to you. Dan would love to love to uh, love to love. He'd love to love to give you one. Open it up, if you would, please, to the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John. We'll go through, God willing, our plan is to start at the Gospel of John and continue on through the rest of the New Testament. Even as we continue verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Old Testament, uh, God willing, on Tuesday night, we'll finish Second Samuel and begin First Kings the following week. We've come quite a ways. Well... Let's do this as well. Let's pray for the marathon because you're probably aware there is a marathon going on right now. Um, my wife sent me a picture that was sent from the news agent of where our house is right now. And I think they said something like 70,000 people, but I, I can't say that that's true. I don't know how that's possible. But obviously we want to pray for the safety of our, of our country and specifically our city through this particular time. So let's do that. And, and let's... Uh, I'm really excited to get into this text because this was the book that I really, I think more than any book, this was the one that I think when it really came down to it, I just found myself danced around by God in a way that I've never been the same since. Lord, I just want to lift up with our fellowship here. Lord, we want to lift up the uh, marathon that's going on right now. We recognize, Lord, there are a lot of people that are... That are uh, for whatever reason, Lord, I mean, I know there's a lot of charities involved, and that's really cool. But Lord, there's an awful lot of people running and an awful lot of people cheering them on. And Lord, I, I pray that you would keep them safe today. And don't allow this to be an opportunity for the enemy to do something really dumb. And Lord, I also just pray right now as well that you would be opening our hearts, Lord. And we, it's so easy to take for granted what it is we get to do here. Because... Uh, it's between this or the comfort of sitting in a bed or doing something uh, restful for the course of a day. And Lord, I pray for every one of us that we will walk out of here so glad we came. So Lord, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, cause your word to burst open on us. And let our minds be attentive our hearts be receptive, our ears be available. And Lord, make this beautiful time, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your final say. The Gospel of John has 15,635 words. It's the fourth longest book in the New Testament. It's 2.56% of the entire Bible. Using a very small amount of words in general, to be honest, John is a fisherman. There are certainly, uh, as I think about this, I think about certain events in my own life that reminiscing caused me to feel emotions still. I'm sure you have them too. You can feel the pain and the pressure and the pleasure or the power of the moment all over again. Uh, and there are other moments, of course, you see the magnificence, the majesty, the marvel of the moment in our hearts race and our voices crack and our eyes widen when we tell this story. Some of those moments we still, our hearts still hurt when we recount uh, and our voices change. Other moments we feel the beauty of it and our lives lighten. It's one of the reasons why, by the way, we often, when we find a couple in crisis, kind of go back to that point where we have them recount the time of their meeting where they first fall in love to kind of remind them why in the world they're in this relationship in the first place. And I, 
I look at this now and I realize after the first-hand real-time account of Matthew, I'm assuming most of what Matthew was writing was writing while it was happening. In Mark's, if you will, second-hand interview with Peter, Luke's journalistic multi-source biography, the testimony is so similar, we call them similar, the term synoptic, that God now commissions an elderly John to ice the cake, recounting events that took place 60-plus years ago. And I wonder how many times this John is recounting this story. He's falling in love with God all over and over and over again as he's retelling it. I mean, it tells us the story of a young, otherwise inconsequential fisherman in an otherwise inconsequential village encountering the immortal and, and uh, invisible, but now tangible God in the flesh. And he followed him. And he ate with him. And this John watched the infinite God die before him and then conquer death as he resurrects and transform the sleepy world around him forever. And John would write then in 1 John that which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon in our hands, have handled concerning the word of life. I could see John just with wide eyes somewhere in his 90s with a rough voice like this, saying, I saw God. I heard God. I touched God. I smelled God. These things I write, I write to you that you would have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. He's like, I want you to have this in common with me. The writer, John, five different times in this book, will call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. 13, 23, 19, 26, 22, 21, 7, and then 21, 20. He'll also write, of course, for a second, third John and Revelation. <clears throat> we read of him, he's introduced in Matthew 4, 21, as a boy who was mending, or a young man who was mending his nets. Two men were washing their nets, casting their nets, and two men were mending them. John was one of them. He is a son of a man named Zebedee, we know that as well from the text. But Mark 3.17 says that Jesus gave him the nickname, him and his brother, Bonerges. And Bonerges means sons of thunder. Sons of thunder more than likely because of their personality. Fiery men. And certainly we're going to see that in their account. Uh, Possibly, by the way, the other pursuant we see here in John 1 when we see Andrew and another man choosing to follow Jesus right from the beginning. It's easy to assume it's actually this guy. We also know that according to this particular book, specifically 18.15, that John was known to the high priest. And what that tells us is John actually will, uh, has, seems to have a fantastic amount of information on things like the feasts, uh, rabbinical traditions. Uh, those are very important things. And John, by the way, has a lot of that information. And John tells us he has some form of personal knowledge. Some people actually believe he was related to the high priest, but it's hard to tell. It doesn't say from our text. The recipients, we don't have much, except we know that they don't speak Hebrew. And we know that because several times in the text, John will have to translate things like, for instance, Rabbi translated teeter and teacher in 138, Messiah translated the Christ in 141, 142, Kephas translated stone, which is Aramaic, uh, six, um, chapter 6, the Sea of Galilee calls the Sea of Tiberias, 9-7, Siloam means sent, 19-17, Golgotha means place of a skull. Certainly, one thing is, is that like most of us here, perhaps, not speaking Aramaic or Hebrew, John, make sure that you know it. 
and, and even though it is a very Greek-intended book, uh, in some ways it is still extremely Hebrew. As a matter of fact, the focus on the feast is so profound that you can't get away from it. Every chapter takes us there in some way or another. Uh, chapter 20, verse 30 is our key verse, actually 31, where it tells us, though Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that aren't written in this book, he says, but these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. John says, if I could have my way, if God could have his way in what he gets here, you would read this book and you would believe that Jesus really is the coming Messiah and that he not only is that, but that if you would really truly believe in him, you'd have life in his name. As a matter of fact, the term believe, to give you an idea, Matthew mentions the word eight times, Mark 15 times, Luke takes it 11 times, and John takes the word believe 85 times. That tells you something more than three times the others combined. Jesus will show himself as the Lamb of God of the Feast of Passover. The feast, by the way, uh, mentioned 14 times, which, by the way, is more than all the others combined. The term begotten exclusively to the Gospel of John. Born again, exclusive to the Gospel of John. Uh, The term the life, exclusive to the Gospel of John. Everlasting life, exclusive to the Gospel of John. Uh, And then we get terms like the Father, because Jesus is not just God in the flesh, but the Son of God in the flesh. And that's clear. Just to give you an idea, the Father, as a definite article, is mentioned twice in Matthew, four times in Mark, uh, three times in Luke, and 61 times in John. I think he's trying to get a point across. The term glorify, more than, if you will, more than one and a half times the others combined. Uh, Jews, the term Jews, by the way, because he shows us that the combination or the challenge is between the Son of God coming and taking on the religion of man. It's, by the way, five, six, five, and then 66 times in John, to give you an idea. Now, Please understand something, and I'm almost right now where we're going to get the text, that the term religious is a term that we shy from all of these terms as Christians, and religious is one of them. It just means devoted. It is a term we shouldn't shy from. As a matter of fact, I pray you would be the most religious. Though The world now has redefined the term, and I think they've kind of made it a cocktail of tradition and sort of man's politics. But really, religion in a simplest sense means devoted, and I pray we would be that religious. Because what we find is that these men had turned the religion to a religion of man and not a religion to God. And the son comes then to redeem us, to show us what proper religion is, if you will. And I find it beautiful that of all the terms that God chooses to emphasize in the Gospel of John, the term love or loved is 11 times in Matthew, 5 times in Mark, 12 times in Luke, and then here 39 different times. That tells me something. That's more than one and a half times more than the others, or roughly. Now with that, as Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, and we'll see that you get the idea here that John was still addressing a Greek mind, or at least a Hellenized mind. So let me kind of lay this out a little bit, and we'll get right into our text. In the Middle East, in a religious world, and I'm speaking now about sort of of Semitic, which of course includes the Jews, you're born with a handful of absolutes handed to you. That's where you start. You kind of know that you were not an accident, You are an intentional creation by the artist of the universe who only makes masterpieces. And you didn't have to find those things that put people in such a radical identity crisis today. You know who you were. You got your identity to some degree from your community, smaller yet from your family. 
You were normally called, for instance, of your father's name. So, Dan, what's your father's name? Is it really? I've, I never knew that. Uh, Alfonso. So you would be Dan Ben Alfonso. And we would know him then, and we would expect him to be in some ways like the Fonz. And Alfonso, I'm sorry. It is important to note that that is the case in many cultures, but certainly the case here. So Dan wasn't trying to figure out just basically who he was because he knew at least within some confines, he knew kind of who he was. He knew in some ways that he was going to be like his father, some ways probably he was going to be like his mother, but he was going to be like his family to some degree. His occupation for the most part was handed down, so it wasn't like he was trying to find it there. But he also knew that more than anything he was going to stand before God and he was going to be accountable for the life that he lived. He's got one, he's going to spend it, and he's going to stand before God with it. But then when the Greeks come in, they have an entirely reverse way of looking at things. Their kind of idea was is that you were kind of born as an accident, similar, by the way, of course, to what a lot of the Western world thinks today. And in believing that you were an accident, your whole purpose in life was to grope, was to keep looking and lunging and diving into whatever you can with the hope that possibly in this you could find them any, any purpose for life any meaning in your life. And so what you have is, as we say, the raison d'etre, the, the purpose, the reason for living, the reason for being, and those fundamental questions, the who am I and why am I here, those questions were never in question within a Semitic world, but they were definitely in question among the Greeks. Now the Greeks, what they taught is, is that in the simplest sense, there was the visible and invisible. The invisible would always be holy. The visible would always be evil. And therefore, there were people that kind of rose up and they were called Gnostics. They thought they had divine knowledge. Uh, all of this crazy stuff even seeps into the Christian world. It becomes crazy there. Uh, it was crazy to start with. It's like if you add crazy to anything, it's going to just be crazy plus whatever. It's like a coffee drink is still a drink with coffee. And if you don't like coffee, you still don't like the drink. And, and when, well, anyways, and you get this idea. And so they kind of got the idea that on one side, if everything was evil that you could touch, well, then you had to beat it into submission. And those were the Stoics. Those were people who couldn't have any emotion. They were the people that were going to be very, very solid. And they didn't experience great pleasure, but they also didn't experience great play, pain. They were people who, in essence, were very robotic. On the other side, there was a group of people who were called, they were, they were led by a man named Epicurus. And we still use the term Epicurean today. And his idea is, well, yeah, but if everything you can't see, like your soul is holy, well, then you might as well just do any horrible thing you want to do because what difference does it make? You're going to wind up going to heaven anyways, the idea. And so he would say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Who cares? And so you have on one side people that were going and doing crazy madcap madness and they were the Epicureans. On the other side of it, you had the Stoics who basically were going to do nothing. So you had everything and nothing. And these were the, the, this was the lunacy that the world was living in at the time when John is writing this now, roughly about 90, 100 A.D. And he's writing to a group of people who are Christians, it appears, or at least are trying to grapple with this idea. He wants them to believe. But he knows this is where they're starting. So it doesn't surprise me the way that he starts this. And I get the idea here that in my searching for meaning of life, for purpose, for truth, for what life would really be like to thrive, to be alive. The one that I would crave, not just existence. We have these first few verses, five verses. So profound in presentation, so sublime in declaration that they need to be intentionally with great care and deliberation pervade into 
as timeless truths. These verses tell me everything that I've ever searched for can be found in one person. Look at it with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John starts this before he gives us the narrative of Jesus' day, which will start with John the Baptist in verse 6. He gives us these five verses, and he starts with the term in the beginning. In the beginning. So I start to ask myself, when was this beginning he was speaking of? Well, in Genesis 1, the first book of the Old Testament, it started with this, in the beginning. Matter of fact, the term in the beginning, barashit, is actually the term that is used that if you were to speak to a traditional Hebrew, he wouldn't call that book Genesis, as we call it, which means beginnings, because it's a Greek word. He would call it barashit. Barashit is because it's the first word of the, and barashit means in the beginning. Well, what happened in the beginning? According to Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I actually have this mindset that if you can get past the first verse of Scripture, the rest of it should be easy. If you really do believe that God created the heavens and the earth, well, the rest of it shouldn't be hard to believe at all. Because God could do whatever he wants with what he did with it. So, in the beginning, at this place, somewhere what God was creating, and by the way, reiterated in Hebrews 1.10, when it says, You, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus would say, by the way, at the last book, also written down by John, Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Hebrews 12.2 calls him the author and finisher of our faith. He's at the very, very beginning, and he's at the very, very end, as a matter of fact. But I also know this, that according to 1 Peter 1.20, before the foundation of the world, it had already been preordained for Jesus to be our Savior. So before there was a beginning, before there was a creation of the heaven and the earth, Jesus was already there. And not only was Jesus already there, he was already made, he had already made the decision to redeem you and to redeem me before we were ever created, before anything was ever created. Now for the Greek mind, there was either that which was created or that which you can't see. Now, that which was created had a beginning. Everything that's created, from the chair you sit on to the hair that's on your head, everything has a beginning and has an end that you can see, touch, feel, hear, except for God. Even your soul had a beginning. It just doesn't have an end. And somewhere before all of that beginning, there was a decision made to redeem you. A decision, by the way, to redeem all mankind. And that decision was made through one act, and that would be the act of the cross. Obviously, 4,000 years before the cross would be invented. And in that beginning spot, John takes us not to a birth or an announcement to a mother, but rather to a place we were not. To the very creation of all mankind, the creation of everything. He says, in that place, when if you were there and sit and watch, what you would notice is there were two individuals that seemed to be one. And I know that because he says, in the beginning, there was this word. Now notice, by the way, it isn't a word, but it is the word, a specific word. And the word word, by the way, is the word lagos. We get the word logic from it. And I might say it this way, we get the words logic or meaning or purpose from this. 
As a matter of fact, we use the term when we study something, like for instance, bios is the word for life, one of them. When you study life, scientifically, it is the study of biology. The term for your soul is suke, or psych. And the study of it is psychology. It is the reasoning, the meaning, if you will, the purpose behind, the logic of that particular subject. So from the beginning here, and I don't want to get overly philosophical, but we need to recognize what John starts here with. There was a spot before you were ever an uh uh-oh in your parents' eyes. A spot before there was ever anything that we can see around us. And in that particular spot, there was a purpose. There was a meaning. There was a word. There was a logic. And that logic was already with God. Which tells us God wasn't just flinging things into place to see how they would work out in sports. There was a logic there. There was a reason. And when I start looking and going, I'm looking for the reason for existence. He says that reason was there before anything existed. If I'm looking for a purpose to my existence, he says there was a purpose there before anything existed that we see. If I'm looking for a logic behind things, he says that logic existed way before anything that was created. But that logic was with God. But also that logic or that reason or that purpose was God himself. Now, here's where we start this. With every one of these statements, these five statements, I have to say, therefore, therefore, this word, this logic, this reason, this purpose was a person and that person was God. And yet God, according to verse 1, was with God. That's a little weird. And yet I don't have a problem with that later on because to be honest, even going back to Genesis 1.1, it says, Bereshit Elohim. The second word, Elohim is a plural for God. Eloha is the singular. God was considered in a plural and yet considered singular. The same way that I might say we are a fellowship but made up of several parts. In that same way here, He tells us that if you're looking for a purpose for life, a reason for life, a logic behind everything, you got to start with where it is found because before you were ever created, that logic already existed. Before anything was ever created, that logic and that purpose and that reason existed. And that purpose and that reason was God himself. Which means Jesus is my sanity and my sense, the course and reason for all of life and existence, not just me. And therefore, Jesus is and not gives the answer to all of my soul searchings. Everything that man chases after or a woman chases after, first and foremost, must be found in him. The thing that John taught me as I read through John the first time so many years ago that revolutionized my whole life is that God doesn't just give. God is. And I started to realize that I was using God as a means to the end and not the end himself. So God would give me peace and then I'd run out as if that was somehow to benefit God. Second verse, small. He was in the beginning with God. One thing is important to recognize is that when we speak of Jesus, we speak of someone eternal. Not just like us in the sense we have an eternity forward but an eternity prior. 
And that does separate them, by the way, from Buddha and Muhammad and anybody else who wants to sort of show up on the scene and say who they are. It tells us, by the way, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Psalm 41, 13. Psalm 90, verse 2. And even his throne, Psalm 93, 2, is from everlasting. And there's something too important to really grab our head, grab our, wrap our heads around as we start to look at this. And that is God alone has the market cornered on eternity, on the transcending. And this is why I see so much more clearly how the enemy works as I look at this. Because see, if for a moment I could be brought out of the desire for the lasting and I could be brought instead into a place of temporary fixation, I could buy into something that for a moment will placate me instead of will permanently satisfy me. And the enemy's been doing that ever since. There's nothing about alcohol that permanently satisfies anyone. There's nothing about any drug that permanently does that. There's nothing about sex that permanently satisfies. The Bible makes clear sin is fun for a season. It just doesn't last. That's why it has to keep getting worse as it keeps exaggerating because what was so exciting and seemingly fulfilling for a brief moment at one moment doesn't fulfill the next day, so you have to add more. And as I look at this, as simple as this little verse is, John himself, the Baptist, would say, not the writer, but the Baptist would say, that this was the one who was greater than me because he was before me, though clearly, according to the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus physically on earth. But Jesus was older because, well, you can't get older than eternal. Now, there's all kinds of questions in my head that I, so, I suppose that I'll probably sit and talk to the Lord about when I get the chance. Like, so what were you doing all of those eternal years before you created the earth? I really don't know. But right now, obviously, that's not the point where he would have told me. What is important to note is, is that even at a moment like this, have you gotten to the point where you're so desperate you'll just take the temporary? You know, there was a moment where you knew that if you were going to be with the right person, they were going to be this because this would have the lasting effects. But now you've kind of chiseled down to something that will make you happy for the moment. I mean, is that what we do? And we kind of, you know, we chisel away from what we know should be right to something that's kind of right-ish. And somewhere in that we want something that, you know, well, just satisfy me for the moment and I'll be okay or distract me for the moment instead of I want something that lasts. But listen, only... God does things that last forever. And this is why Jesus will constantly be bringing up terms like everlasting or eternal life. We can get hints of something that feel great for a moment. But the Lord gives us it in lasting. He's he's the only one in it. And because he is the only one who can do that, and it's not only him that gives, but him that is that, The more that I live in him, the more I see that eternal. But also I realize that if I want to do anything that's going to last, it's going to have to to be him doing it through me. So in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him nothing was made that was made. Patadio tu egeneto. Now, there's a simple logic here. 
If he had to exist before everything was made, then he couldn't be made. Jesus could not be created if everything that was created came after him. And John makes it in a way so that at least honestly, there is no possibility Jesus could be called created by this verse. The term all, panta, means everything. Everything that has ever been created had to come through him to be created, which means he had to be there. I mean, there, something was the first thing created. According to Genesis, it's a light. But imagine the idea here. Let's say the light's the first thing God ever created. Jesus had to exist before that for it to go through him to be created. And yet there's a group of people out there that try to tell me that Jesus is not God and that he was a created being. <clears throat> and yet if they spoke with John, especially as a son of thunder, I imagine they would have gotten quite an earful from him even in his 90s. And I imagine it's one of the reasons he was writing this. The word, the logic, the meaning, the purpose created everything that came to be. Nothing that you see somehow did not get through Jesus. It came through Jesus if it was created. And that takes me right to Colossians 1.16 where Paul reiterates this and says, By him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Listen to this verse, beloved. It says, All things were created through him and for him. If you ever wondered, why in the world was I created? And there are some that say you were created to worship. There are some that say you were created to serve. And I would say, I don't believe that. According to this, you were created for him. You were created to be with God. He created you because what he really wanted was a companion. And he invented you to, to be that. Could you imagine? Could you imagine inventing you to be your best friend? Would you have done that? Would you have invented someone just like you to be your best friend? Yeah, that's what God did. Your purpose for existence is him. Now, that will mean we'll find ourselves worshiping him. We will find ourselves serving him. But we can try to do all of those things and still not be with him, and God would get no pleasure out of that. He is not only the creator. He is the very reason I was made, and you too. Do you know that? Are you still trying to find the reason for your creation somewhere else? Or worse yet, do you genuinely believe that you were just a cosmic collection of somehow fortuitous accidents? Because that's what the world's teaching you? Scripture makes clear you are the purposeful act of art by one who only makes masterpieces. And I will never find my raison d'etre. I will never find my reason for being until I have the peace to recognize God created me for him. And if God created me for him, I might want to ask him, what would you like with me today? It is amazing how different that makes things. And I just ask, how much of your life, Christian, because I know most of you, as I look, you've walked with the Lord. You've said yes and you've professed that. You've stood in the water with a lot of you. How much of our life really is just opening up the morning and saying, all right, you made me for you. What would you like to do with me today? Could you imagine how that would change things? Last two verses. 
En otro zoe en que zoe en ofoston anthropon. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. This word, this logic, this meaning, this purpose was the life I seek. Notice it doesn't say from him was life, but in him. If I want to actually have the life that God intended, well, then I need to actually find myself in him. Interesting, because there's a process here. In him was life. So here's him, in him is life, and in that life is the light of men. Light is the idea of truth. And that is no doubt one of the largest, if you will, calamities of mindset that happened in the Greek world. Then, of course, adopted by the Romans. Because if you remember when Jesus speaks to, to, uh, to Pilate in John chapter 18, <coughs> Pilate will turn to him and say, what is truth? What is truth? Jesus had already told us clearly by John 14 when he said he is the way, the truth. In the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Him. And I get the idea here. So the idea of light would be the idea of truth. I'm looking for truth. What is real truth? Is it really the sliding scale thing everyone tells me out there? Or is it something there God says? God says, you really want to know truth, you've got to know me. But yet what's interesting is that the truth was not even clearly seen until first I got the life. Did you notice that? In Him was life. If I find myself in Christ, I'm going to find the life. But if I find myself in that life, then I'll find the truth because it's in that that there's the light of men. And it's like some people want all of the truth, but they don't want to be found in Christ. It's like they want the truth, but they don't want the life. But what God tells us here is, is if I really want the truth of God, I've got to find myself in Him to do so. And the, the reason is, is that God didn't make it so that we had to understand volumes and volumes and volumes of information to receive a relationship with him because he doesn't want anything standing in the way. He brought up the one thing that mattered. Your sin and my sin, your guilt, my guilt, paid for at the cross of Christ. <clears throat> and at his resurrection, a new life offered. If I accept that gift, I could find myself in him. And if I find myself in him, I discover the life. <clears throat> Excuse me, and as I <clears throat> find myself in that life, everything becomes clear now. And I know you know what I'm talking about if you've said yes to Jesus, because there were so many things that made no sense until you said yes to Jesus, and then everything became so clear. Things that are like, I can't believe how simple this is now. But it isn't like he said, memorize all of these things and get all of these truths understood and then you can accept me. And that teaches me something in my therefore. And that is when I want somebody to come to know Jesus, I need to make it as simple as possible. And there's so much that I could put in the way between it, but it's like, you need to know this first. Everything else hinges on this. Jesus died for you and rose again. And God wants you to believe that and have life in his name. Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2 started with the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God raised us up, made us alive, and seated us in him. And in him is in Christ. Above every principality, power, might, and dominion, and everything that is named. I get the idea that of the one thing that Jesus seems to say the most of who what he calls himself, it's the life. John would say, by the way, in 1 John, that the life was manifested. And I've seen it and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father 
but now manifested to us. But Jesus would say that he's the bread of life, and therefore he gives for the life of the world, John 6.51. He's the resurrection and the life, John 11.25, and the way, the truth, and the life, John 14.6. No, my source of life is not from him, but it is him. That's the point. And if I want life, I need to be found in him. Are you walking in Christ today, beloved? Finally. Catufos and in Scotia, finally. Okay, Scotia oto u catalaben. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. The word, the logic, the meaning, the purpose declared war on darkness. And God has displayed things here in our natural world. And that is light will always be the dominant over darkness. Darkness doesn't stand a chance. We don't encase darkness and shine it because we want dark somewhere. All darkness is, is the absence of light. It is never the overcomer. As a matter of fact, what he tells us is, light cannot help but shine. What light does is shine. By virtue of it being light, it shines. And if Christ has called you now the light of the world, as he tells us that, by the way, in Matthew 5.14, you can't help but shine. The only issue at this point is whether you want to cover it up or not. The only thing to do with a bright light is obscure it. And you can do that with the flesh. It's like putting a shade over it or a bushel over it, as Jesus would say. And yet, according to the text, that only reason that, we, that we're light at all is because Christ dwells within us. And the more transparent we become, the more we seem to glow. But I love the way he puts it here because he says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not... Katalaben is the term we use here. Kata means according to... Laban lambano means to get a hand on, to grab, to hold. So here's the idea. Two men are wrestling, a classic Greek thing that was done. They'd shave themselves, oil themselves, and then, kind of similar, I guess, to some ways to what you see on the air. And then they'd go and they'd strip down and they'd, they'd, they'd wrestle with each other. And, and as they would wrestle... There's certain ways you get points. I fought competitively for a period of time. And there's a certain way when I fought MMA that you kind of get points. When you connect, no matter how much you swing and no matter how much you kick and no matter how much you do your flying funky things, the bottom line is if you don't connect on the other person, you don't get any points. So you could stand there, no, come on, come on, come on. But if it doesn't touch anyone, you're not getting any points for it. And ultimately, if somebody doesn't get knocked out, then they count the points. Who landed more points? The term katalaban is the idea here. Katalaban means that there wasn't a single point gained. There, you couldn't even get a handle on it. Now, there's two different ways to look at that. One is <coughs> that he was trying, but he couldn't get anywhere. Or the other is, as I've seen in a couple fights, where the guy was just so big, the guy came at him and dropped him with the first shot. It's like, oh, he never even landed a punch. And that's the idea of this. 
that you need to recognize. When it talks about the Antichrist in the New Testament and how he seems invincible and people will say, who can fight against that guy? It says the Lord will destroy him with the splendor of his coming. Knock him down with his breath and then destroy him with the splendor of his coming. Splendor of his coming? So this guy's like, you know, scary, exorcist stuff. And people are like, oh, freaking out, I'm freaking out. Jesus is like, hi, boom, and the game's over. That's it. There's no big fight there. There's no Jesus on the ropes or down three, four, always getting back up. There's none of that. Jesus goes, hi, here I come to save the day. And boom, it's over. And I love that. And that's what he tells us here about light and darkness. He says light shines in the darkness. And you know what darkness does when light shines? It flees. It doesn't stand a chance. It says the darkness couldn't even put an inch on that. The darkness couldn't even resist it. The darkness couldn't get a handle on it. The darkness couldn't land a punch. So John starts this gospel with this. Before you were created, before those trees were created, before there was ever a Grand Canyon, before there were ever those weird stones toppled on each other we call Stonehenge, before there was ever mountains and seas and lakes and polar caps, before there were ever stars in the sky, before there was ever any of those things that people are still trying to tell us are expanding and getting older. Yet in all of that, I think when I first went to school, I think that the world, the universe was like, I don't know, was like 10 million years old. And now like the world, the universe is like 30 billion years old or something like that. I'm like, don't think I went to school that long ago. I mean, it isn't like that long ago. And the whole point of it is, is that we still can't figure out all that stuff. Or we're trying to get all of that because we're trying to try to figure out a way to explain it outside of God. Well, we, not us in this room. But before any of that stuff ever existed, and all of those nonsense scientists are trying to give us some kind of goofy answer, instead, before all of that, there was a spot where God was going to make everything, including you and including me, and Jesus was there, and he was your reason, and he was your purpose, and he was your logic. He was every purpose for existence was right there in one person, and that was Jesus. And he looked and he thought, yes, Josh, yes, Carolina, yes, Sam. And he, you were in his heart. Even then. So when you were created, he already had a perfect perfect mind. The fact of the life that he wanted to live with you. And he knew all of the dumb mistakes and the times where you'd run off. He also knew how long it would take for you to get there. And be like, oh, Hugo, well, I'll wait, but it'll be worth the wait. And imagine him telling the stories to people as he creates angels and saying, wait till you hear how he's going to meet this girl, Deborah, and he's going to have to learn her language, and then she's going to go into church. And And imagine the story to be told there. And then getting excited about seeing it. My youngest reads the, the kind of, they're kind of like liner notes to a story before she watches some kind of TV show or something because she wants to know. And sometimes she gets really excited when she reads it. She's like, oh, I, this is going to be fun to watch what happens because she kind of gets the story a little time ahead of time. Now she wants to see it played out. And I could get the idea of God telling us that story and then we get to see it play out. And a lot of what we read is a lot of that, isn't it? And before any of that, you had a purpose for existence before you existed. And you had a reason to be before you ever were. And he was with God in complete union. And everything that was made was made through him, including you. And everything that was made was made for him, including you. And in him was the life you're looking for. You're looking for life, a reason to exist. 
what it merely means to live and not just exist. It's found in Jesus, friends, and nowhere else. No matter what person petitions for the religious leader of the week or the savior of the world, only in him is found life. And the reason is because you were created by him so he knows how you live. He knows what really makes you live. And he put it in him. And if you feel like something's missing, I can tell you it's Jesus. And what's interesting is when you find yourself there, all the light you need will be found. Every truth. And you're trying to find the truth outside of that place, you're not going to find it because that's in the life that's in him. So where you're dwelling, someplace right now where light's shining on you, somewhere you're still trying to dwell in the darkness. David would say, by the way, no matter where he would go, he couldn't find a space away from God. He wasn't upset about it, by the way. David would say, by the way, in Psalm 139, verse 11, and surely if I say, surely the darkness will fall on me. Well, even darkness is like light around you, around, around me. Darkness shall not hide from you. It says, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both a light to you. As a matter of fact, it tells us when we actually stand before God, there will be no need of a sun because he's all the light we need. Now look at As we go to prayer, in the end of all, we have to contemplate the simple fact that these aren't just things he gives, these are things he is. And as we get into the story of Jesus, as you read through the Gospel of John and as we study it together, we have to start with this. You are God's intentional creation for fellowship. And he put everything you need in him so you wouldn't have to go to a lot of places to find it. He wouldn't make it complicated. He'd make it simple. And all of your heart's yearnings can be found in him and would be found in him. And when that happens, it's not just like a temporary thing. They get satisfied for good. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, this is what he has for us. If you haven't, this is what he has for you. And that's the choice we need to make. As whether we're willing to say, all right, Lord, by faith, remember he said these things were written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you would have life in his name. That's what he desires. Is that believing isn't just acknowledging. Believing is putting the trust that you have upon him and saying, you know what? I'm going to try this. I'm going to dive into you and I'm going to try. I'm going to lay my life before you and say, now, fill those holes. My purpose, my meaning, all of my soul's cravings, send me to the buffet that fills these and let it be you. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this text. I want to thank you for what you've done in it. I want to thank you for the way you've spoken. And I recognize in this text, God, there's so much depth. And I know, Lord, we've only scratched the surface. But yet, even in scratching the surface, we get the idea that we were there was never a point where we were an accident or somehow in this that we were just something that slipped past the radar. But we are an intentional creation by you to be with you. Forgive us for where we've forgotten that or gotten distracted by other things. Forgive us, Lord, for where we have sought in our own foolishness to fill those holes with things that only for a moment, like broken cisterns, where we've forsaken you as the well of life, 
to try to draw from broken cisterns as if somehow that could ever satisfy. We recognize only you do things for good. We can kick up the dust, but only you can move the mountains. So even today, Lord, I pray that in this room right now, move in our hearts. Move in a way so that we could say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. If I really made for you, well, then have me. If the only way that my whole life could be satisfied is in you, Lord, forgive me for looking elsewhere, well, then satisfy. I recognize the idea that Jesus died on the cross so that so that all my guilt and shame could be covered and washed away and paid for. And at his resurrection, that I could be a new person so that I could be with you with nothing between us. So with that in mind, I say yes. I declare you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, payment for me. But now, I give you these holes in me. These lonelinesses and confusions and hurts and pains and misunderstandings. and I lay all of those pits before you. And I respect that you have the right to fill them. So Lord, first, that hunger for life, meet me there and fill that spot. And then that hunger for truth, as I find myself in your life, meet me there. And may I walk out of here different having encountered you full from the feast. Show me how to follow you like I should. In Jesus, in your name. Amen.